All right, last time we talked about our motivations for godly service, uh, that uh, everywhere from fear to love can motivate us when we're motivated in the right direction, and that is through Christ and not uh, through self. When it's self-love, it's not a good motivator. When it's God-love, it is. When it's fear of loss for ourselves, it's not a good motivator. But when it's fear of the Lord, it is a good motivator. Um, but love is really the foundational motivation for all things, that all of our other motivations have to come from the foundation of love first. And that's the only way that they will be good motivations. So our motivations for rewards, which we're going to look a bit more at this morning, uh, that has to be on the foundation of love in order for it to be good godly service. Because if we're looking self-servingly for rewards, uh, then we are not going to be building up those rewards. But if we are seeking rewards for the proper purpose, and that is out of love for the Lord, then we will be building those rewards in heaven by means of the Holy Spirit. A better way to say that would be the Holy Spirit is building up those rewards on our behalf as we are yielded to the Spirit and the Spirit uses us. So we want to be yielded to the Spirit, meaning that when we sense its movements, either through scripture or through prayer. Uh, we want to be uh, willing and ready to abide in that love of Christ so that we can be used as servants of Christ. So here in uh, 1 John 4, 17 to 18, we did read these verses last time. Uh, I wanted to point out one word in 17, but let me read this. Uh, first, it says, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. So this term perfected, I've pointed it out in previous lessons, uh, but it really has the sense of matured. It doesn't mean perfect, as in um, everything you do from this point forward will be perfect because you have love. But it means that the love that is in us comes to maturity when, um, when we act in this manner, when we are yielded to the Spirit. That's what grows us spiritually. When we are acting in self-will and not in God-will, then we are not maturing in the Spirit. So here is what mature love and spirituality and fellowship with God looks like. That when we have this love relationship, it is casting out that fear of punishment. That when we come before him, we're not worried that we haven't done enough, worried that we haven't um, achieved our salvation because we understand through a mature understanding of scripture that he has done all those things on our behalf, that we need merely to walk in them. That's Galatians 5.16, that we need to walk by means of the spirit and not by means of the flesh. And that reflects a mature spiritual walk. And this is particularly here in the context of confidence on the day of judgment. That is a future judgment. That is not something we endure or uh, undergo today. So this has a view towards the future, that as we rest now in love, we are being 
perfected for that future day. You can think of Philippians 1, 6. It says, he who began a good work in us will continue until the day of the Lord. That that perfection is uh, not something that's done the day we are saved, but that continues to progress while we are yielded to the spirit and growing spiritually. So that on the day of the Lord, we can reach our full spiritual um, maturation, not by our works, but by his conformity. So we've seen this theme multiple times through John. So I wanted to pull out a couple of passages where John talks about, uh, about this confidence we have on the day of judgment, uh, because some of these we did a few months ago. So here in chapter two, it says, now little children, which remember is his endearing term for fellow believers. He says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Remember, this does not mean that we need to abide in him so that we are saved on the day of his coming. It means that we need to abide in him so that our works show the good fruit that has been built up because of our yielding and abiding. In Romans 14, 10, uh, we see this judgment seat of Christ. Um, it says, but you, who, uh, why do you judge your brothers? Or you again, why do you regard your brothers with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And this is in Romans 14, after he's finished discussing um, basically his systematic theology of salvation, his uh, systematic soteriology, uh, Paul then gives application to the believer. This is in the context of the believer. He's not talking about unbelievers in this section because unbelievers will not stand before the judgment seat of um, God that is being spoken of here. This is the Bema seat, the Bema seat judgment, not the great white throne judgment that happens after this. Believers stand under a different judgment than unbelievers because we will be judged for our rewards or our lack of rewards, whereas the unbelievers will be judged for their faith in Christ. And if they do not have it, which they won't because they're unbelievers, uh, then they stand up on their own merits and their own merits are completely incapable of bringing them salvation. So all believers who stand before the judgment seat of God have already been saved and that's why they're there and they're judged for their rewards. All unbelievers who stand before the great white throne judgment are already lost and that's why they're there. In 2 Corinthians 5, we see this Again, it says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed, that means returned or given, for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So bad works in the body or lack of good works in the body of Christ will result in a lack of rewards. But good works yielded to the spirit, having the spirit working through you, that means not choosing what you're going to do, but being willing to do what the Lord puts on your heart to do, what the Lord leads you to do. Uh, 
that will be rewarded in heaven. So these are our different rewards that are mentioned in scripture. Now, these are all called incorruptible crowns because these are crowns that we, um, we run the race like Paul to achieve. But instead of being given a crown of leaves, a crown of laurel leaves like they did in the Greek uh, Olympics, we would be given an incorruptible crown, a crown that doesn't wither, a crown that when it passes through the fire of judgment will not fade away. So these crowns are the crown of life, the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness, and the crown of rejoicing. And the first one, the crown of life, is sometimes called the martyr's crown. That's from Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. And that is the crown of the one who suffers to the end, the one who is martyred for his faith. But uh, one doesn't have to be martyred in order to receive this crown. That is the most extreme um, that even unto death um, they have suffered for Christ. That's the crown of life. The crown of glory, the elder's crown, is uh, basically the crown for a teacher, one who teaches in the body of Christ, one who is yielded to God's instruction so that he can instruct others and who is faithful in that task. That doesn't have to be a pastor. That can be any teacher um, in the body of Christ who helps to edify the saints by building up the saints, by instructing them in God's word. The crown of righteousness is one we're going to look at a little bit more tonight because that has more to do with what John is talking about here. Um, that's probably the reward that John is John has in mind in this passage in chapter 4, because that's the crown of the one who loves his appearing, the one who fights the good fight, the one who perseveres in his faith. That's the crown of righteousness. Um, there is also the crown of rejoicing. This is the evangelist's crown, the soul winner's crown, the one who either plants or waters seeds uh, that lead to salvation, uh, so that we have all-encompassing. We have here personal growth. We have here perseverance on, uh, on the part of our faithfulness. We have teaching and edifying the saints. So we have all aspects of Christian walk here um, encompassed in these crowns. But this is the one I want to focus on tonight. Because, again, this is the one that John has in context here. So in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8, now this is, um, this is a passage from Paul, um, and Paul is given this reward a name, whereas John has not named this reward. But Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So I want you to notice two things from this. It has, or three things. This reward is future, just as John has put his context to being future judgment. It's for the one who has kept the faith first. That's how Paul says he achieved this reward was by keeping the faith. His faith didn't fall away. Um, he, he maintained his faith in God by resting in that finished work of Jesus Christ. He never changed his doctrine. He never wavered 
this way or that. And he kept his eyes on the future. He kept his eyes looking forward towards the return of Christ the King. And so he extends this and says that this reward is to all those who love his appearing, to all those who are waiting for him to come back, waiting for that perfection um, to be achieved through him. So this crown of righteousness is one that requires maintaining our sound doctrine. We need to study God's word to do this. We need to be ready and yielded to the spirit. Uh, if you remember, that has the idea of giving more of ourselves to the spirit. It doesn't mean receiving more of the spirit. We've already received a full anointing of the spirit at our salvation. The only thing left to yield is more of ourselves to the spirit. So as we're yielded more to the spirit, as we spend our time in God's word, which is how he has chosen for us to get to know him. And when we spend our time in prayer, communicating back to him, we grow in God's word and we secure this crown of righteousness. Without this sound doctrine, this crown of righteousness becomes more and more unlikely for us. And uh, if you look at my background picture here, I didn't post the, the uh, verse, but in Revelation chapter 4, I believe it's verse 10, the elders around the throne of God cast their crowns before the throne. This is the ultimate purpose of our crowns. It isn't for our glory. It's for God's glory. We receive these crowns, this one being the crown of righteousness, so that we can glorify the Lord when we receive it, casting it before his feet, recognizing that it's not by our efforts and not by our will that we received that reward, but because we were yielded to him and he achieved that through us. <clears throat> so we want to remember also that our salvation, our standing before the judgment seat of Christ is absolutely certain. We don't have to work at all to get to the judgment seat of Christ instead of the judgment seat of God, the great white throne judgment. We are already there by means of salvation. We only need to be uh, maintaining our salvation or our faith. We don't need to be maintaining our salvation. Our salvation is maintained for us. And that is how we can rest in the love of God. If we don't know our salvation is secure, then we have fear. But when we know our salvation is secure, there is no reason for fear. Uh, that is our perfect and matured love. So I just want to give you a proof text here of our eternal security and show you just how secure it is. Um, when Jesus is talking to the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, in, uh, actually, I think this is Matthew. No, this is John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. Now, eternal life starts at the moment of salvation, not at the moment of death. Eternal life means forever living. It doesn't start after you've stopped physically living. It starts immediately. So I have given eternal life to them, that is you and I, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So we are in the hands of Jesus Christ at the time of our salvation. But he continues. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of 
the Father's hands. So we are in Jesus Christ's hands, and then we are also in the Father's hands. And it says no one, and that includes you, no one can take the believer out of the hands of God. So even the believer who falls away in his faith does, is not, does not lose his life in Christ because he is held by the double grip of Jesus Christ and God the Father. But he may lose his crown of righteousness because this requires, um, this requires running the race, maintaining the faith. Here Paul says, I have kept the faith. What was, um, what was in question for Paul was not his salvation, but this crown of righteousness when keeping the faith. So I've got another quote here by my friend Brad. Um, he's got an excellent picture there. Um, he says, the person who is fearful of the Lord has not really understood or dared to believe the amazing complete love of God and salvation that has been given to everyone who places their faith in him. The moment we place our faith in him, a work has been completed, not given to us on loan, but completed in us. It is important to note that the person who continues to walk around in the fear that God is going to punish him, either in this life or in the next, will never mature because they are still not coming to a full understanding of the amazing and complete salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. So we want to be absolutely certain of that finished work of Christ so that we're not walking around in fear, but there we are walking around in the confidence of our salvation, knowing that it's on Jesus' merits and not our own, so that we can be ready and primed for the good works that the Lord has prepared for us to walk in. <clears throat> so now we move on to our new verses, First uh, John four nineteen to twenty one, and with the good foundation already, it's not going to take us long to get through these verses, but. Uh, this says, we love because he first loved us. This is our foundation for love. It doesn't come from within us. It comes through us, from Jesus Christ, because we've experienced his love, we have love to share. If we are giving human love, then we are emptying our cup into other people and we will all run dry. But if we are sharing God's love, then our cup is being overfilled so that we can overfill into other people. It says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now, this is hard for a lot of Christians to wrap their heads around, but it's exactly what John is saying. He says, loving God is tantamount to loving your brother's so that you can't have one and not the other. You can't love your brothers, but hate God, and you can't hate God, or you can't love God and hate your brothers, because the source of love for brothers is God. So if you hate God, you have no love to share with your brothers. But if you love God, but hate your brothers, then you don't truly love God, because you hate the ones whom he loved and died to save. So here, um, let's look at this quote by Tom Constable, and I think these are my only two quotes. I like to keep it mostly scripture in here, but these guys sometimes have some good uh, 
easy ways of organizing thoughts that I like. It's, he says, uh, it is easy to have a kind of love for God which does not recognize the obligation to love one another. Such love for God falls short of being real love for him since it fails to obey his commandments. Remember, the one who loves God will obey his commandments. And as John says, this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So not only are we failing to love him if we hate our brothers because we hate the ones he loves, but also because we are not obeying his commandment to love. So we have a, uh, a double incentive there to be loving our brothers. And remember, that's on the foundation of our love for God, that we even have love for our brothers because he first loved us. So it is on that motivation. And here in uh, 1 John 3, which we looked at a couple of months ago, it says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the word, the world's good, and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us love with the word. Um, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So this is very important in what John is saying. First, this is confined to brotherly love, that is, between Christians. This doesn't mean that we are obligated to give all of our worldly goods to worldly causes, um, or even to evan uh, evangelistic causes. But within the body of Christ, we are to look out for one another, even being self-sacrificial. Because God is upholding our brothers and sisters, and sometimes he uses us for that upholding. And he can do the same thing for us. Sometimes he uses our brothers and sisters as a means of upholding us. Because remember, John's argument here is that his experience physically together with Jesus Christ is not essentially different from our experience together in the body of Christ. That just as John experienced firsthand the love of Jesus Christ because he was able to lean up against the Lord's chest as he ate a meal, we are also able to experience the love of Jesus Christ because it's the love of Jesus Christ through our brothers and sisters that we can experience in this, uh, in this day. Now, there is coming a day where we will see him physically face to face and that day is one that we long for, and that will be so much better than this day. But John is saying, don't neglect love because the lover of our souls is not here present with us today in physical form, because he is here equally present in spiritual form, and he is working in the body of Christ to mature those believers. So we want to be ready to be used, and we want to be recognizing when others are being used in our lives too. Uh, because that gives us confidence and that that gives us that love. Uh, so here uh, we see that all the way back in Leviticus, that's the third book in scripture. Hang on, I got a message here. Failed in what way? Oh, Ruena, I, I'm sorry, I missed your message earlier. Um, what was the context for that? <laughs> sorry. That's okay. Oh. I'm, I'm 
I'm answering Janet's message. Oh, that's okay. No problem. <laughs> no problem. That's okay. Don't worry. Um, so here, there was an old commandment in Leviticus, uh, very early in Israel's history, that said, you shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he says you need to love your neighbors um, in the same way as you love yourself, and you wouldn't want to hurt yourself, right? Well, this isn't the best. It's a good old commandment, but Jesus Christ, when he comes, he improves this commandment because sadly, there are people who do not care for their own lives. So when someone doesn't care for their own life, and that is the basis for their love for others, then their love for others will not be pure. Much better and perfect, in fact, is love for our brothers that is based on the love of God, that is foundation upon the love of God. So he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So Jesus' love for us was love unto death. He died to save us. That is self-sacrificial. Remember the verse, I don't have it in here. I think it's somewhere in John that uh, even a, let's see, someone would even dare to die for a good man. Um, but Jesus Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Actually, is that Romans? That sounds like Romans. Uh, that Jesus Christ died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of him. He chose to die for us. Uh, so we want to be self-sacrificial for our brothers because Jesus Christ was self-sacrificial for us. So again, we want to remember our perfect position in Christ, uh, that this love doesn't come from us. In John 17, he prays what's called the high priestly prayer. This is his prayer to the Father um, about the completion of his work here on earth. And what he is focused on is those believers whom he is leaving behind on this earth. And that includes us. It's first and foremost his disciples, but it also expands and looks out towards those who would come into the body of Christ. So he says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and, and loved them, even as you have loved me. So we have this as an ideal of the Christian life, that when we are in unity, we are reflecting that love of Christ that he has given to us. When we are in disunity, we are not reflecting that love to the world, and we're not sharing it with our brothers. Um, so we want to recognize our position that we are in him just as he is in us. And so we are in God. This is unity uh, with the Father. This doesn't mean equality. This doesn't mean that we are gods. But this means that we are brought into this loving fold of fellowship. We are part of the family of God, just as John says uh, in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, 
that we are children of God. Actually, do I have that here? Yes, I do. I put it in. Okay. He says, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So again, this has its view towards the future, but with a present context. Because of our future, what is our present like? He says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So when we have our hope fixed on the end goal, which is to be like him at his return, then when we see that as something that's guaranteed, that our perfection with Christ is guaranteed at his return, we want to be moving in that direction. Uh, when I was learning to drive, um, I had a hard time staying in the lane. I, I was always shifting and moving into different lanes. So my mom told me to stop looking five feet in front of you and start looking 500 feet in front of you. And when you have your eyes set on that goal, it's so much easier to stay in the lane when you're not focused so much on right now doing absolutely perfect, but have your focus on your position in Christ, that that is absolutely guaranteed that you will be glorified together with him. Then you want to be moving towards that direction of glorification. You want to be serving in the body of Christ, yielding to the spirit's work in you, because that is your future. That is your eternity. So you might as well live in it now because it is a glorious and perfect eternity. So I want to uh, give you this from Romans 8, which talks about our perfection in Christ, our position in him, um, even right now. It says, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So we are in the family of God and we come to him like we come to a father. We come to him knowing absolutely certain that we are in his family and because we are in his family, he loves us and he's already demonstrated our love or his love for us. So we have love to share with our siblings, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So with that, we, uh, we finish tonight's uh, lesson. And uh, we're moving into the last chapter of 1 John, starting next week. So uh, let's pray real quick, and then uh, we'll have some discussion time after. Dear Lord, we thank you for this... Uh, this wonderful passage that you gave to John to record for us. Uh, we thank you for his character that we can clearly see in it, this love that he has manifested for his brothers and sisters in Christ, this care that he has for them. And we know that that love and care comes from you so that not only his words are inspired, but his character here is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we thank you that uh, we can read his words so many centuries later and uh, truly feel and experience um, the position that we have in Christ through his word, that we not only wait that future time of glorification, but we experience our sanctification even here and now um, as we rest in your word, as we trust that it is true and uh, that it is trustworthy. 
We pray, Lord, that you are able to use this in our hearts and to use this in our ministries to give us confidence for the day of judgment. We pray all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen.